I'm Antonia Bowering, and I am an executive coach in New York City. And the way I love to introduce myself is the way I like to get to know new clients, which is I ask them to tell me about their cultural identity. So I'd love to share with you a few key things about my cultural identity. And because I think it will help you get to know me. And when I say cultural identity, I mean that in a very broad way. Um, so let me jump in. So I think the most important thing in terms of my identity is that I am a mother to two boys, one that I delivered myself, gave birth to myself, and the other that I did not. That is core to who I am. Also core to who I am, which has a funny interplay with entrepreneurism, entrepreneurship, is that I'm Canadian. I was actually born in Britain, but raised in Canada. And that is core to who I am. And I would say third, well, two more things. Third, I am a seeker. I have been a seeker all my life. I, it started with travel continued with travel, uh, different kinds of work. I've worked nonprofit, for-profit, um, sometimes no profit when it was supposed to be profit. And I'm constantly wanting to learn. And, and, and I would say I am really a strong value is a learning mindset. And the last thing I would share, which is also a value, but core to my identity, is that I would say everything I have done in my life professionally has been in service of. And right now, I would complete that by saying in service of the potential of individuals and, and by extension, their organizations and their companies. So that's my intro. Perfect. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the kinds of clients that you work with, uh, specifically yeah. uh, if you want to focus on social entrepreneurs? Yeah. So in order to, uh, to understand about the kinds of clients I work with now, uh, I come at it from several, several different angles. I have uh, worked in the nonprofit sphere, uh, specifically microfinance and then in environment for a big chunk of my career. I also was a management consultant and then started coaching full-time, greatest move I ever made um, in 2014 in the middle of the World Cup. I remember it clearly when um, uh, Brazil lost to Germany in, I don't know if it was a quarterfinal or what it was, but it was a very dramatic moment. And the kinds of clients I have, it shifts. It, it depends on the moment and has shifted over time. I work with uh, a couple of large nonprofits, uh, most importantly, the International Rescue Committee, which is doing unbelievable work with refugees around the world. And I work with some corporate clients as well, large financial services, uh, large consumer packaged goods. 
but the the core of my um, my work is with founders and leaders of high growth early stage companies and sometimes organizations. And they really are totally diverse. I have um, uh, uh, journalism, I have women's reproductive health, I have um, a community group for new mothers, and I also have uh, food companies, fintech, and um, and and SaaS companies. So. No one looks for a coach when everything is going really, really well. And most people or companies look for coaches when there is a, a, a challenge or a, a problem or something that needs to be overcome in order for there to be greater success. So let me be more specific. You know, I see my role as helping my clients to thrive and flourish even more. I see myself as their biggest cheerleader in a way, because um, particularly founders and, and these early stage leaders are unbelievably critical of themselves. And so I'm their biggest cheerleader, but what, I don't know if it's become more challenging in, in, in the work world or if this challenge was always there, I think it's become more challenging. It's really hard to have a mirror held up so that you can see yourself as others see you and get, uh, you know, relatively objective feedback. Um, and that's what a coach can do. And you know it comes from a place of enormous psychological safety because the coach wants the client to flourish and thrive. And yet part of being a coach is uh, using radical candor, being direct and bringing things to your client's attention that they might not be aware of or, or might not have wanted to see. So when you say uh, that, so, that, yeah. the, that the clients are, founders are critical of themselves, what do you mean exactly? How are they critical? Yeah, well, in, in so many different ways. Um, for many founders, it, it, there is a tremendous amount of pressure in the startup community about how fast you grow, um, if you are a for-profit company, how fast your revenues grow, how fast your community grows. And there are, there's, there's a lot of, um, yeah, I, I would say unhealthy comparisons. Um, I have, I can think of a few clients I have that this is really something they struggle with, that even though they're on a fast track of growth, they are constantly comparing themselves to um, others, maybe from school or from their early years out of school, and they feel they're not moving fast enough uh, or high enough as quickly as their peers, that they're being left behind. That's one. And 
particularly with social entrepreneurs, there is such commitment and, and, and focus on solving for their, um, the, the challenge that they want to address that uh, sometimes they can have blinders on and they can have a very narrow way of measuring their own success in um, meeting their objectives. So is success in entrepreneurship about money, power, respect, or is it uh, ultimately about self-respect? I think it's it's all of the above, depending on who the individual is. I, I think in today's world where there are so many and you know, air quotes metrics and and ways of measuring engagement and, and data that we can use to analyze, it um it can feel really overwhelming and it can lead you to really even those with very strong sort of senses of self and personality um, can lead you to question, am I successful enough? And I would say that uh, a lot of what a coach does, and this is how I describe myself, is I am a professional reframer. I help people to reframe the situations they're in so that they can see the agency they actually do have and and find some peace uh, with the things that are beyond their control. Can you give us some examples without names, name, any names, of course? Yes. Um, I have... Yes, uh, a client of mine, his company was acquired and it's been really challenging and he isn't clear he wants to stay or quite frankly that the new owner will want him to stay. And so we have really worked on reframing this as He's there by choice right now. He is, you know, learning so much more by being part of this bigger organization and learning about processes and and and, and ways of organizing um, his his company and team. So we've really reframed it as a learning opportunity that he has the agency to stay or leave and that whatever happens what he's learning sets him up to have so many options for his next chapter and 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 that's something i constantly uh, am reminding clients is you know it is about a portfolio career today and people move around more they um, move into different sectors with greater ease. And so that concept of your career being a portfolio can reduce some of the anxieties around your immediate situation and help you reframe it with more of a learning mindset. 
Uh, I can give you another, let me think of another uh, example. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Yeah, someone who was just promoted into the C-suite of her company. And she has a lot of um, new skills and new behaviors that she needs to demonstrate in her new role. And we, again, have been reframing this as a, a whole learning journey. And for her, really importantly, to understand and to embrace whether or not she wants to stay in, in a larger corporation and whether that fits with her values. So that would be another example. Is it necessary for people to um, see whatever they've been through as a learning journey, uh, as opposed to just saying, all right, I'm just turning a corner, moving on to a different career, forgetting, <laughs> forgetting about my career, maybe they, you know, especially in cases where they, they're not in love with their job, is it necessary for them for, I guess, for them to feel better about what they do? Um, to do that? that? That's a really thoughtful question. So I can only share with you the way I approach my work, which is that, you know, particularly folks earlier in their, in their careers, you know, there's, and, and I still hear it from women who are very successful in their careers, you know, imposter syndrome, and I just don't have enough confidence and this type of thing. To me, confidence is built incrementally, and it is really about constantly moving to the edge of your comfort zone and trying things. It's like building a muscle. That's the way I describe it. And you keep doing it you keep building that muscle, you keep moving out of your comfort zone. And when you, you, when you add up all that muscle memory, you have a very toned and strong body that is really resilient enough to take on new challenges. So that's a very long answer. And the short answer would be yes, I think whatever we do next is built upon what we have learned from the past and present. Do social entrepreneurs measure their success differently from regular entrepreneurs? Uh, well, I mean, the challenge is that social entrepreneurs don't always have uh, revenue as an easy way to measure success, right? It's, it's an easy way to measure things. And with social entrepreneurs, it can be much more challenging to measure impact. Though not always, I think the whole field has gotten so much better at that. Um, so I think that for, for even, you know, for-profit entrepreneurs that, that have a kind of social purpose embedded in their business. I actually would 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 say that today 
for those lucky enough to be able to ask this question, that the whole idea of having purpose and meaning in work is far more fundamental than let's say when I was starting out. It, it, was, it was as if when I was starting out after college, you, there was, it was a, a kind of binary path. You either went down, you're gonna work in a for-profit company and that had all kinds of implications or you work in nonprofit and that had all kinds of implications. And I, you know, it, it brings me a lot of joy to see that today, you know, things are more complex than that, uh, more nuanced than that. And that there is so much more opportunity for people to engage in work with, with passion and purpose whether it's for-profit, non-profit, or a hybrid. Uh, have you had any clients who have dealt with existential crises um, directly connected to the fact that they find no meaning in their work? Huh. I was going to make a joke there about a certain sector of professionals, but I'm not going to because it's not fair. Finance? Uh, uh, I, well, I was going to say legal, but... Um, Oh, yeah. Look, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and I have a slightly different take on this. Um, yes, the short answer is yes. I, I have clients like that, particularly ones that find me that want to engage in career transition. Uh, I do a little of that work. And, and um, so do you become and, uh, more of a psychologist in that case? Than a no, coach? More, uh, no, more of a career transition coach, which is really helping them tell their story in, in a compelling way. And you'd be totally surprised at how hard it is for most people to do that. And, and then to help them sort of sift through priorities. Um, a lot of people think they want to do something, but actually maybe aren't prepared to face what the trade-offs are. So I help them navigate all that. And, um, but where I was going was to say, you know, we live in a culture that somebody says, oh, you know, wow, yeah, she followed her bliss. She became a yoga instructor and isn't that amazing and nothing against yoga instructors, I love them. But, you know, there are a lot of um, parents uh, who perhaps are in jobs that are not the most fulfilling or the most purposeful, but they do them. And I feel like they deserve a lot of um, recognition because they're responsible adults who are fulfilling responsibilities that they have to their families. And I always try and really celebrate that and help, you know, help people again to reframe what they're doing. And, you know, also to think about career, again, not as just a linear journey, but it can have chapters and chapters with different headlines and they're different lengths and, you know, uh, nothing has to be forever and there are ways even when you're doing work um, and I've had this experience myself where 
I didn't feel fulfilled in certain ways professionally. I found ways, whether it was board work or volunteer work, um, even in, you know, studying improv to get that joy and purpose in other realms of my life. Uh, and then, you know, I'll keep using myself as an example here. Now I am in a chapter where, you know, my entire work life is about helping and supporting people to thrive and flourish and be sort of uh, more successful and more fulfilled versions of themselves, uh, which is like the most unbelievable work. So, you know, nothing has to be forever and patience is important. And also kind of looking at the, the, the big story sometimes can help you put things in perspective. Great. Uh, which, which are the main reasons why someone would choose not to follow their bliss besides being a responsible parent, uh, of course? Yeah. Uh, what else in your experience? Yeah. 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 Gosh, there's a lot there, right? That's therapists talk about that all the time. Huh. Um, I, well, I would say fear for one, uh, you know, societal or familial expectations. I definitely have uh, clients who went into a certain profession or field because they felt they had to, whatever that means. Um, yeah, I would say societal and family uh, expectations and their and their own lack of, yeah, their own fears of failure or, or, or fears of living into purpose and what that might demand of them. Let's transition a little bit to the work that you do with companies. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned on your website that you work with nonprofits and human center companies. So you work with the entire group or uh, not with, let's say, the oh. CEO or the uh, executive director? Yeah. Yeah. So it depends. So uh, I'll give you specifics. So at one company, I work with the entire leadership team together. And that's really about the uh, the kind of leadership team uh, success and and creating just a really straightforward, uh, clear, communicative environment where people feel safe, recognized, uh, able to have healthy conflict, but at the end of the day, emerge united with clear business goals and um, ways of holding themselves accountable. Uh, I also work, for example, uh, at the International Rescue Committee with uh, a number of country directors uh, with various professional, or, or, well, various sort of senior staffers that are in either fundraising or um, business development or um, sort of specific programmatic roles. 
So it, it really varies. Um, and then in some companies, I just work with one person. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really a very sort of one-on-one relationship. You work with people with ADHD, correct? I do, yes. And yes. you're saying that these are, you, you mainly work with leaders of companies. I was wondering, is, can ADHD be more like a superpower for some people? Yeah, you've read my um, articles. Uh, yeah, it. I mean, look, neurodiversity and 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 specifically, I am, you know, what I, the piece I know is ADHD. Both having an adult diagnosis of it and having a, a son with it diagnosed with it, um, and working primarily with the leaders I work with who are neurodiverse are have ADHD. Um, yes, it is, it is now being seen, I think, differently, talked about differently, recognized differently. And I think in some ways, there are superpower elements from it. But I think more importantly, it's kind of who someone is. And it has positive aspects. And it has challenging aspects. And it's not so important to say something is good or bad as to just say it is. And then having more knowledge about it and, and, um, and background about what it means for, to have an employee or have a leader or a manager who's neurodiverse um, equips you to, to uh deal with that person differently and helps that person themselves to manage or lead leaning into some of the strengths that can come from it and acknowledging where they need more scaffolding to up their gain in areas that are more challenging. Can you talk a little bit about DISC? Yeah. So uh, actually, before we talk about this, can I give you uh, a couple of, can I give you a couple of ADHD examples? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So when you said superpower, so I have a client whose company was acquired and ADHD is definitely a, um, a challenge when it comes to him initiating uh, tasks, particularly ones he doesn't want to do, right? It's hard for everyone, but for someone with ADHD, that task initiation, as it's called, can be really challenging. And that's something that a busy leader can also beat him or herself up about because it can really get in the way of productivity, right? This same leader absolutely shone during the um, uh, fundraising kind of acquisition uh, process of his company, which took several months. And it was, to use your words, like the ADHD became a superpower because there were so many balls in the air and so many aspects of this process that needed his attention and he could bounce 
from one ball he was juggling to another and keep them all in the air in a way that um, many people cannot do. And it's because he could hold it, focus, and let it go really quickly. So I wanted to just give you that example um, of, of sort of, you know, the ADHD being both a superpower and yeah, a challenge in terms of sort of ongoing focus with sort of perhaps more mundane activities, but we all have to do them and also task initiation. Great. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about DISC. Um, so DISC is another one of these assessments out there. Uh, it is a personality assessment. And it's most similar to Myers-Briggs. And Myers-Briggs is, I think, the number one utilized assessment, you know, globally. And I think DISC is second. And Myers-Briggs is more complicated than DISC. DISC is a very, very simple uh, personality test where you are looking at introvert, extrovert, um, and an action, inaction, um, uh, quadrants. So DISC has four quadrants of a circle, uh, a D for dominance, an I, oh my God, like I do this all day long. And what or influence. is I? Yeah. Influence, thank yeah. you. <laughs> S for, um, what's S? Steadiness. And C is for conscientious, right? right? Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. You're Thanks welcome. for well, having it up. I'm cheating. I, I have it I, right on my screen. <laughs> I know. And I literally do. I have done hundreds of these, but I, I some, yeah, whatever. We're not perfect, are we? Uh, and what I'm I love. putting you on the spot, I guess, so. No, no, it's, it's fine. What I love about DISC is uh, it is a beautiful tool. It is really inexpensive. It is really well-researched and, um, and, and very sort of uh, sound from a research uh, and point of view. And it is also really easy to understand and gives teams or even sometimes I've done it for an entire company before, um, gives them a sort of safe language to talk about differences and to appreciate differences of communication and work styles. Uh, really, if it's really the beginning of a conversation about diversity. And because you're talking about people communicating and working in diverse ways. So I use it quite a lot and, and it's so easy to understand. I use it because number one, everyone who takes it learns something about themselves and they gain self-knowledge. Number two, if you do it with colleagues, it can help you understand more about what's driving certain behaviors you see with colleagues, right? And thirdly, 
given that knowledge about yourself and others, it can make your ability to communicate or, or work together that much more productive. Yeah, I love it. I, I use it a lot. Antonia, thank you so much. I think uh, this has been great. I don't know if there's anything else you would like to add that I, uh, I should have asked and I didn't. No, I, I think the only thing I'd like to end with is something that you and I talked about before we got started, which is, you know, like, why are there so many coaches now? And where were right. they 25 years ago, right? Is, is there some new need we have that didn't exist 25 years ago? Right. Or was there a need that was unmet and now it's it's being met by uh, uh, a, a, a big set of people who are relatively unregulated, right? Um, yep. And my answer would be, or because or, I've been thinking about that, I thought that was a really interesting way to think about it. I would say the world has gotten so much more complex. And people have gotten so much busier. You know, I think of when, when my father worked, there were actually people that he worked for or, or that worked for him. And there seemed to be time for more mentorship, for, for more opportunities to share knowledge and learning one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. I, I might be overly romanticizing it, but that's the strong sense I have. And today people are so busy, things are so pressured. And let's face it, the, the, the complexity of the world is enormous. And the fact that you see, you know, I don't have the statistics at my fingertip, but you know, the anxiety statistics, the depression statistics, even just statistics of recognizing neurodiversity in our workforce. We, it, it does suggest that we need more personalized, more nuanced and, and highly, um, highly intimate responses to some of these needs. And that's what good coaching can bring. So I think there are some amazing coaches out there doing unbelievable work in helping people navigate challenging uh, personal and business uh, situations. And, um, I wish everybody had a coach. I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was great. Um, I think I think a, to a great extent it has to do with uh, the fact that a lot of people just simply need someone to tell them what to do, and they're too overwhelmed by everything that's happening, and uh, there that's why there's a lot of need out there for advice and uh, that's yeah. why you have uh, cheap versions of you 
appearing on uh, on YouTube all the time. And on the other yeah. hand, of course, in in the on the supply side, in my opinion, again, there are a lot of people with no career who say, "Hey, you know, why why don't since I can't do it, why don't I just yeah teach it? yeah yeah." Well, look to to your point. Uh, you know, be a good cust, be a good client, right? Do your research. Uh, I can say uh, there's one very um, clear uh, barrier to entry. Does this person have certification from the International Coaching Federation? Uh, there may there are exceptions. I know amazing coaches who didn't don't have it, but it's almost like a minimum quality seal of approval. If, if you're not accredited through them, that means you haven't gone through an accredited coaching process and passed their exam. So, you know, do your due diligence like you would if you were, you know, going to buy any um, uh, resource intensive service, right? It requires your time and your money. Absolutely. I was wondering to what extent does the client uh, matter in the whole in your in your process of uh, of development? Um, meaning, do you have the client do certain exercises? By that I mean reflect on certain things, do some authoring mm. things, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the short answer is every single engagement is different. Um, every coach has a different style. Some always assign sort of homework. Others never do. Then there's many in the middle. Um, it, to me, coaching is about meeting the client where they're at. And absolutely, for me, coaching is about cheerleading. And it's about helping people uh, grow and, 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 and develop new behaviors that are on the edge of their comfort zone. So this, sometimes there are articles to read and discuss. Sometimes there are, um, like I just gave someone an exercise of, uh, starting, a, a suggesting she start a kind of gratitude journal, uh, I just had a client the other day who has a really, really, is really hard on herself and only has a very strong self-narrative of um, her failure, even though she's very successful. So I encouraged her to write down every day five pride moments from that day. So it gets tailored to the client's needs. 